You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. stand again uh, to bring the Word of God. If you would please stand with me as we read today's passage from the New Testament. It is Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 16 and going through verse 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in uh, in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished, and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Be seated, please. We've come now to Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 23 uh, in our study of Colossians. And uh, we begin this morning with a religious problem, that is sin. Since God created the human race, we have been locked in a deadly struggle between slavery and freedom. God has offered us freedom in a relationship with Him. And his commands for us have always been to promote our freedom. But God's enemy, Satan, has always aimed at enslaving the human race with a twisted wisdom and deceit regarding sin's destructive power against us. His weapons of war have always been religious ones, systems built on lies sprinkled with enough truth to convince the naive and corrupted people that we are as a human race. We are the battlefield of that religious conflict. Conquest of body and soul has been Satan's goal. Satan's religious systems have overemphasized at one time or another either the body or the soul, whereas God created us to be both body and soul. The false teachers that we face this morning in our passage focused on the body and attacked the Colossians with unbiblical additions 
to God's commands. So Paul has two standing operational orders for us as we hold our ground against this false teaching. One is in verse 16, therefore let no one pass judgment on you. And in verse 18, let no one disqualify you. From this passage, we can see the basic scenario that's been played out for centuries with different religions and denominations. The religious group condemns people who don't participate in their religious experiences or gives rules for behavior based only on tradition, such as don't go to the movies, don't play cards, don't dance, don't go with the girls who do. Paul is telling us to stand firm against religious claims like this because we have the confidence in Christ to know that he has redeemed us and set us apart for his purpose and has entrusted us with the grace of glorifying God on earth. This morning, we're going to examine the claims of the false teachers who are attacking the church at Colossae, evaluate that teaching, and then show how Christ is the superior answer to their claims. So first of all, the content of the false teaching. As we read this passage, we see that these teachers in Colossae were putting pressure on the members of the church to conform to two areas of their false doctrine. First of all, religious observances, and secondly, religious experiences. Now, we, we start with religious observances. Now, because Israel was designed to be a nation representing God on earth, their worship was to be holy and pure, sourced only in Him, not a mashup of ideas and practices from everywhere else. And this explains why God created the extremely detailed instructions in the law of Moses covering every aspect of life, from the calendar to sacrifices and food, All of these laws were designed to remind Israel of the high privilege and responsibility of their relationship to God. But none of these commands was ever meant to put anyone in right standing with God. The law shows how inadequate human efforts are. But these false teachers who were attacking the Colossian church had turned these legitimate instructions from God into a system of works by which they claimed people could be right with God. For them, observing circumcision, the calendar, and the kosher food laws were the ways to be on God's good side. And if you worked hard enough, maybe even get to heaven. Moses never designed the law to be that way. God never said, if you work hard enough, you'll get to heaven. God always says, I'm the one doing the work. I'm the one who gets the glory. And man-centered religion had perverted the Old Testament commands. And these false teachers now demanded that people keep these commands that they had come up with to add to God's commands to be right with God. The opponents were using these commands to judge other people, to enslave them to commands that God had never made. Now, so far, what, we've, what I've said, uh, what we've noticed about the opponent's teaching is basically what Paul had to deal every, with everywhere he went. Wherever he ministered the gospel to a group of Jewish people and then Gentiles started coming to Christ, he had to deal with 
these issues. He had to deal with circumcision, which was mentioned in the passage last week when uh, uh, Joe gave us the message. Uh, Kosher eating, Sabbath observance, and these were all markers of the uniqueness of God's people. Uh, uh, Jesus is constantly having uh, a struggle with the Pharisees, for instance, about Sabbath observance, and he's very often uh, uh, performing miracles on the Sabbath to test to see what their, uh, what their reaction is going to be. And he exposes their hypocrisy. And everywhere Paul went, it was circumcision. There were people who, uh, who said, You've, you must be circumcised in order to be saved. It even comes out in Acts chapter 15. Big dust up over this. Uh, so, even among the first Jewish Christians, there was controversy over these issues. Even well-meaning people said, you have to be uh, circumcised according to the law of Moses to be saved. And uh, there was a big uh, uh, apostolic conference, if you will, in which they finally said, hey, you know what? God is accepting Jewish and Gentile believers on the same grounds, and that is by the faith that people like Abraham uh, displayed. But, you know, we read in Galatians chapter 2, which was written a number of years before this letter. It was probably probably Paul's first letter. In Galatians chapter 2, there was a time when even Peter and Barnabas, get this, even Jesus' best friend on earth, one of them at least, one of the inner three uh, disciples, There was a time when Peter and Barnabas became ensnared in pressure to conform to circumcision and kosher eating. And and they had formerly understood that God doesn't require Gentiles to keep the law, especially the food laws. But when Peter gave in to social pressure and withdrew from eating with them, says says Galatians chapter 2, Paul had to rebuke Peter publicly for his hypocrisy. So there's religious observances which the false teachers and some Jewish Christians were still struggling with that we deal with in this passage. But then there's the religious experiences that we come to that are really the strange part of this attack on the Colossians' faith. There was a strand of Jewish thinking at the time and we can read about this in rabbinic writings, that emphasized mystical experiences and visions. The center of their desire, this mystical strand of Judaism, was to participate in worship with or to view the angels engaged in worship. Paul mentions this idea when he says in verse 16, let's look at it, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. See, the false teachers are going on in detail about visions. Now, some of these rabbinic writings that I've mentioned reveal this line of thinking. They wanted to replicate experiences like Isaiah's spectacular throne room, vision of God, or Ezekiel's vision of the chariot of, of Yahweh, or Daniel's vision of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. Now, the name by which we know this religious system is Merkava mysticism. 
The title comes from the Hebrew word for chariot, Merkaba. And the claim was that the mystic could ascend to heaven in, the, in a chariot like Enoch did and watch the angels and participate with them as the angels worshipped God. Of course, Jesus says to Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So Jesus says, if you, if you think that you have ascended to heaven, no, it doesn't work that way. I'm the one who has come down from heaven. But in Merkaba mysticism, only the most knowledgeable people could experience this kind of ecstatic vision. To get to the throne of heaven, they had to say certain prayers, and in some versions of Merkaba mysticism, have the right passwords to get past the angels who are guarding the throne room of God. And the technique for achieving the state of mind needed for such a heavenly journey seems to have been severe asceticism, the harsh treatment of one's body. They hoped to prepare themselves for having visions of angels worshiping by their asceticism. So, you know, the phrase in, in this passage in verse 16, the worship of angels is ambiguous in both Greek and English. There are two possible meanings for the phrase. First of all, it could mean worship directed towards angels. It could be, uh, it's possible that Paul thinks that the false teachers or is saying that the false teachers worshipped angels. Uh, even the Apostle John in Revelation 22 verse 9 is corrected when he tries to offer worship to an angel who had shown him a vision. However, the second meaning of worship of angels, given what we have just talked about, how America by mysticism works, is more likely. In other words, worship of angels doesn't mean worship directed towards angels, but worship of angels here means worship in which the angels engage. So the false teachers are saying, you guys, to be right with God, you've got to, be, you've got to take part in these kind of mystical experiences and ascend to heaven and watch the angels at worship because that's where it really is at. Uh, I, I think nowadays we would say uh, it's probably just a low blood sugar uh, thing uh, for them uh, beating themselves up. I don't know. I, I don't know what's really causing these uh, visions for them. Paul doesn't even talk. Paul doesn't even acknowledge whether they're, whether they're visions they've actually seen or whether they've made them up. But these false teachers put great stock in religious observances, Sabbath, circumcision kosher eating, and religious experiences, these mystical heavenly journeys, and they wanted to enslave the Colossians to their man-centered rules to join them in this farce of a religious experience. So that's the content of the false teaching. Let's see what Paul tells us about, in this passage, about how he thinks that false teaching works, and it doesn't. Paul wants the Colossians to realize what a weak and paltry substitute for the truth this heresy is and to reject it. Let's consider how Paul evaluates this false teaching that distorts God's design. First of all, it's not substantial. It's not eternal. See, the, 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 the terms shadows and destruction really come into play here. 
Paul designates these feasts, uh, new moons and Sabbaths of verse 16, as shadows of the things to come. Look at verse 17. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The law itself was designed by God to point to Christ. And it was designed to be obsolete when Christ arrived. So in verse 22, Paul declares the false teacher's dogmatic assertions about the law still holding sway have come to an end. These are things that all perish as they are used, he says in verses 21 and 22. Destruction awaits these things, and destruction awaits those who put their confidence in them too, now that the reality of the fulfillment has arrived. Look down to verse 21 and 22 again. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. Any religious system that does not hold fast to the head, that is, to Jesus Christ, is wrong, as verse 19 says. Another aspect of this false teaching is that it's harmful to the body. Now, this is a really interesting topic, actually, the topic of how the human body should be treated. And we, we might, uh, 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 seminary professors like me might say, yeah, this is Paul's theology of the human body. What, all we mean by that is to say, what does Paul say that God is teaching us about how we should view our bodies? How does God view our human bodies? Look at what verse 23 says. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. Now, why would Paul be concerned about harming the human body? This is where it gets a little tricky because many people, including Christians, think it doesn't matter what you do to the body. But God made people with two main components. Now, this is probably obvious, but... I've got to say it anyway. We've got a human physical body, you know, this, this material that we're made of called flesh, and a non-physical part called a soul or a spirit. Now, I, I know that uh, an atheist won't accept this, but, but let's assume for the moment that everyone in here knows God, and we'll just go, go from there. Now, just about everyone would agree that the most important part of human existence is that non-material part, the soul. In other words, you could be fairly severely uh, uh, limited in terms of what your body can do, but your soul can still function. We recognize that our attitude matters just as much as our actions and that motivations are ultimately what make certain actions right or wrong, depending on the context. But God considers the thoughts and decisions of the soul just as important or more important than what we do with our bodies. But here's where the danger lies. Just because the soul is more important does not mean that the body is nothing. And the fact that we've been created this way as body and soul is really important to God. Now, ancient Greek philosophers like Pythagoras and Plato used to distort the importance of the soul with a pithy saying, soma sema, which means the body is a tomb. 
meaning that the soul or spirit is trapped in the human body longing to be free. But God has designed humans to be, as I've said, body and soul. Ever wondered when the soul separates from the body, what happens? You're dead. But denying or abusing the body is one means the devil has used to ensnare people in his world system. Asceticism of the kind that these false teachers were demanding of people was supposed to keep them from sin. In reality, such harsh treatment of the body was enslaving people to man-centered legalism. Now, in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul is talking to people with an opposite problem. That is, those who said, we can do whatever we want with the body and it doesn't affect the soul at all. And uh, we can please our bodies because they're designed that way. But what Paul says about the body applies to asceticism and hedonism alike. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verse, uh, verses 19 and 20, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, from whom you have from God? Sorry, let me try that again. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So your body and soul are united by God to form your whole person to the glory of God. And to mistreat the body the way the Corinthians are doing is wrong. God bought our bodies and souls with the price of his son's blood and caused his spirit to live within us for us to be the place where God is worshipped on earth. It's not the building, it's us. The false teachers in our passage make the error at the other extreme. The mistreatment of the body. Such harshness on the body violates God's design just as much as lawless self-indulgence. So it really matters what we do with our bodies. But it matters even more how we think about honoring God with the whole person. We need a view of ourselves balanced by what God has done for us in Christ. And Paul teaches us that the body is part of the whole, as part of the whole person is meant to glorify God. He says this in Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. See, the body is meant to carry out the spiritual wisdom, the spiritual worship, rather, we are designed by God to do. In fact, the body-soul connection is so important to God that he redeems our bodies in the resurrection. Romans 8.23 says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the firstfruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Key, key phrase here at the end of the verse, the redemption of our bodies. So it's an error to disparage the body, which is, as the psalmist says, fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, we have trouble with our bodies now. And uh, as we get older, we have more trouble with our bodies, don't we? Our bodies decay and die now. We're groaning, waiting for God to complete his plan. 
But our hope in the future of God's plan tells us it matters what we do with our bodies right now. So the most important of all is that we use our bodies to glorify God. Now, we come now to another aspect of this false teaching, and that as Paul is critiquing it, he tells us that it feeds, this false teaching feeds arrogance. He says, let no one disqualify you, verse 18 says, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Or in the Net Bible, the last bit of this verse reads, he is puffed up with empty notions by his fleshly mind. Now, literally, the Greek text that you see in your ESV, uh, by his sensuous mind, is literally uh, the Greek words that we could translate, by the mind of his flesh. Remember I've said we've, we've got uh, two components, don't we? We've got this flesh that we're, that we're made of. So it's by the mind of his flesh. Ironically, the mystic is puffed up by emptiness. The most complicated philosophical and religious systems that fall in human nature, that is, the flesh, can produce amount to worse than nothing. Paul even calls this dung in uh, Philippians 3.8. The flesh in biblical vocabulary is often associated with sensual pleasure, but it means far more than simply gluttony or promiscuity. And it's clear that these false teachers are interested in asceticism rather than pleasures. So when it says, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, by the mind of his flesh, you see, the flesh is fallen human nature across the range of human sin. It's that rebellious arrogance at the heart of human nature that corrupts everything about human motivation and behavior so that we want to be in control ourselves whether it's enjoying pleasures in the wrong way and at the wrong time, or denying ourselves things that, has, that God has designed for our good. Another aspect of this false teaching that Paul is critiquing is that it does not hold fast to the head. In other words, it doesn't hold to the authority of Jesus Christ. Look at what verse 19 says, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. And of course, the body here in verse 19 is the church, right? We've already seen uh, several times, especially in chapter 1, how Christ is the head of the body, his church. Now, the main problem of humanity, if we could boil it down, then is arrogance. Deep in our hearts, we want to be our own authority and we refuse to hold on to God's authority. And we see this destructive attitude of the flesh in two more aspects of, the, of, of this, this false teaching. The next one is that it's the sham wisdom of men. Not only does the false teacher lack authority for what he's trying to promulgate in the, in the, uh, in the Colossian church, but he also lacks wisdom. Verse 23 says, These have indeed the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The promotion of self-made religion 
and asceticism and severity of the body looks wise to a man-centered worldview because it appears to give humanity the power to exert control over sin. The false teacher thinks he can forcibly restrict his body by abusive self-discipline and thereby make God accept this purified body he has. That false teacher then is taking the credit for his own efforts and he's trying to rob God of his glory. Listen again to their commands. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Does that remind you of something from Genesis? Do not touch. It certainly sounds like an echo of Genesis 3, doesn't it? Genesis 3, 3, the woman answers the serpent. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But she made it a key addition to God's command, didn't she? Adam had heard the command from God in the previous chapter, in chapter 2 of Genesis, uh, Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Nothing about touching there, is there? Now, when we think we have the wisdom that's, uh, we have wisdom that's better than God's wisdom, we're deceived. Genesis 3, 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes... And the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The woman saw it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree would make one wise. And when she and her husband ate, they gained the appearance of wisdom, but at a terrible cost. They had become aware that they, were, that they had sinned. There's the wisdom. Isn't that a disappointment? That's the way Satan's system always works, isn't it? He promises you something that looks wise and true, and then once you've got it, you find out that it's empty, like these false teachers. These false teachers add to the commands of God, and like Eve, they think their addition to the commands of God are wise. But their additions lead them and everyone who follows their teaching into sin. Now, the last thing that Paul critiques is of this false teaching is that it is powerless against sin. And speaking of sin, then we come back to the main problem religious people have recognized, that we sin and we've got to do something about it. Religion says, I'm going to find a way to do something about it. God says, I've already got the way to deal with this. Trust me. But when we turn our eyes away from what God has revealed, we can only have the appearance of wisdom, not true wisdom. And it's even more foolish to turn away from God's wisdom on this subject since God has revealed the solution to our greatest problem, sin, which stands in the way of a relationship with him. And so the most telling of the errors of this false teaching is that it can't help anyone in the battle against sin. In fact, it leads to more sin. Verse 23 again. 
These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are, no, uh, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, probably better here, the satisfaction of the flesh. See, these false teachers are attacking the Colossians or trying to get people to follow them into behavior and attitudes which don't restrain the human desire to rebel against God. Now, like I've said before, we must not think of the indulgence of the flesh as, as if it meant only giving in to the urge to pursue pleasure. Again, it means far more than sensual desires. The word translated indulgence can mean satisfaction or gratification as well. So that's why I read the word satisfaction in translation just then. This is the only place where this word occurs in the New Testament. So you can't say, well, I've studied every occurrence of this word in the New Testament. And it always means. But it refers to the satisfaction of the flesh's desires. People doing things their own way rather than God's way. And in the extremes of asceticism on the one hand and pleasure-seeking on the other. Paul exposes this arrogance of the flesh in designations self-made religion and of no value. The controlling the body does not control sin because the problem isn't the body. It's the soul that controls the body that leads the whole person into sin. Jesus put his finger on the real issue in regard to the food laws that, that these guys are pushing after excoriating the Pharisees for twisting their traditions to justify their maltreatment of, of even their parents, he says this, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Jesus says, it's not a stomach problem it's a heart problem, if I could put it that way. Uh, I know I, I just changed metaphors there, but it's not, it's not what goes into your stomach that defiles you. It, what's, it's what comes out of your heart that defiles you. And as the prophet Jeremiah puts it in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So we've talked about what the false teachers are claiming, and now we've evaluated what the, the false teachers' claims turn out to be, and they turn out to be nothing, if not positively worse than nothing. So we come now to the third point in our message, which is the relational solution, that is Christ's superiority. See, religion focuses on man's accomplishments, what I do, God tells us to focus on Christ's accomplishments. Jesus is the only one qualified to make atonement for us. Jesus is the only one who can bring us to God. That's why we say Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship with God through Christ. And so the relational aspect here of this solution is, first of all, that you died with Christ, so don't live in the world. See, when someone comes to faith in Christ, he or she has entered into union with Christ. 
So one of Paul's favorite phrases to talk about our position with God is, in Christ. And being in Christ includes Christ's past, present, and future. A relationship with God, then, is both death and life. It's death to the old way of life and a birth into a new life. He says in verses 20 and 21 again, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to these regulations? Paul says, if, why, as if you were still alive in the world? Paul says, if, to remind the Colossians of the truth that they already know. If I could paraphrase it this way. If you died with Christ, and of course you did, and you admit that it's true, don't you? See, the Colossian believers died in regard to the elemental spirits of the world. We saw these guys back in verse 8 of this chapter, uh, where they're contrasted with Christ. See, human systems of thinking, philosophy, and deceit, according to human tradition, are the, ve- are the vehicle for Satan's domination. So the elemental spirits of the world are the demonic principalities and powers, or rulers and powers, whom Christ created in Colossians 1.16 and triumphed over in Colossians 2.15. So when those false teachers want believers to submit to their regulations to appease these elemental spirits of the world, they're not asking for submission to God. They're asking for submission to demonic powers. No matter how good they claim their intentions are, they're trying to enslave people to the forces of wickedness because man-centered religion seeks to take God's glory and give it to someone other than God. And so another way to fight back against this, another part of the relational solution is to see, secondly, that Christ is the true wisdom. He's the reality, not the shadow. Look at verse 17 uh, again. These, he's talking about verse 16, the calendar and the food laws, are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Christ is the goal of the calendar and the feast. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament looks forward to the coming of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. There are no calendar days. There are no sacrifices. There are no works that could be done that could add to this work or take away from it. Jesus has already been offered as the ultimate sacrifice. Now, Paul's metaphor here about shadow and substance is really curious. He calls these food laws and holy days the shadow and the accomplishment of Jesus on the cross the substance. Now, the word translate translated substance is really just the ordinary Greek word for body, which is really kind of ironic, too, that they would be talking about, we'd be talking about the body, and it turns out that Christ is the real body, you know, he's the head, Paul is just all over the place with his metaphors. So Christ is the body that casts the shadow, you see? Now, what's, what makes this strange is the direction of the shadow, because the reality of Christ casts a shadow backwards in time as the light of God's plan shines on it. God isn't limited by time or space, so he can, he can do whatever he wants. 
The shadows looked forward to the arrival of the reality. And when the reality comes, there's no more need to hang on to the shadow. Now, imagine someone suffering heat stroke, and it's not hard to, uh, to do after this summer, right? Okay. Uh, and they sent an ambulance to take the victim to the hospital. And it's a sunny late afternoon. You've got to, got to go with me on this. It's a sunny late afternoon. The patient is lying on the sidewalk. The ambulance casts a long shadow on him as it rolls up very slowly to his position because there's a traffic jam, of course, because of all the construction on the street. He rolls up to the spot. The injured person experiences the shadow of the vehicle before he experiences the reality of the salvation that comes with the ambulance. With me here? Now, once the ambulance arrives, it would be foolish for him to say, don't put me in the ambulance. I want to stay here in the shadow where it's cool. You see, Christ is the true embodiment of the shadows, the calendar full of feasts and sacrifices we're expecting. And that's why we hold fast to him and not to the shadows that were pointing to him. So there's another reality to be seen in Christ, the reality of wisdom. Paul has already said in verse 3 of our chapter, in whom, meaning Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The fact that he has all these treasures underscores Christ's sufficiency. This sufficiency is the answer to the false teacher's claim that people have to do something to be right with God. Their false claim, in, in effect, says, Christ isn't enough. Now, yeah, that's fine. You, you, can, you, can, add, you can just do Christ here, but, but Christ isn't enough. Christ plus something else. Okay? You're going to hear that a lot, and you hear that all over the place. Christ plus something else. Okay? So we need to make sure that when we, when we present the gospel that it's Christ and nothing else, we don't just add Christ to our set of desires for, for what we think. We don't just add Christ to our pantheon of deities. It's Christ alone. And that leads me to this uh, last sub-point here about the relational aspect of God's solution to our problem of sin. Christ will give you satisfaction in him. We've been hinting at that along the way. See, these false teachers are telling the Colossians that they are inadequate. Earlier in chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, which we're going to read in a moment, Paul has grappled with their condescending insults against the Colossians. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, there they are again, and not according to Christ, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. See, this, our passage this morning is echoing some of those ideas that we saw in last week's uh, passage. This fullness or completeness of Christ's deity has provided for us to be filled or complete in him. You see how sufficient Jesus is then. 
Human religion thinks Christ is inadequate. Man-centered philosophy says, with our effort, we must add to the work of Christ, or perhaps even reject it altogether in favor of our own effort. And so we human beings turn to rituals and works from human tradition. But this will fail every time. So Paul returns to this idea in our passage, this idea of inadequacy. Paul's answer to human religion is, remember Christ's sufficiency. Hold fast to the head. In verse 23, we've already seen this, Paul exposes the brutal irony of human religion. Those who accuse accuse the Colossians of inadequacy try to do their own works to impress God. In reality, their human effort and man-centered religion is itself inadequate, both in gaining forgiveness as well as in fighting, uh, fighting to keep from sinning. Fighting sin in a way that honors God is to hold fast to Jesus and to find our growth in and from Him. You see, the charge of our inadequacy from false teachers of all kinds is answered by the adequacy of Christ. So as we close, we want to note a few warnings that Paul is giving us here from this passage and from the passage before. Verse 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive. That's the first warning. Second one is, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you. Don't cave into their pressure. And three, let no one disqualify you. Let no one say that you are inadequate because you're in Christ. Paul tells us not to take the threat of Satan's uh, world system lightly. Don't take this lightly. When When he says, see to it that no one takes you captive, he must be saying that for a reason. When he says, don't let anyone pass judgment on you, he's saying that because they'll try. You see, we hear messages from the world, both in religious and non-religious contexts, about how inadequate we are. Constant barrage of ads on TV and social media, which make us feel like we need to have this look, drink this beverage, drive that car, use the latest phone, take this medicine to be adequate. Religious figures try to persuade us we aren't fit for a relationship with God unless we work for it. These days, it seems the opposite. Religious people seem to judge us for preaching the Bible on the specious grounds that people people might feel judged if they heard something from the Word of God that they didn't like. But the Word of God is for reproof and instruction, isn't it? So regardless of the attack on our worthiness before God, we must remember our adequacy, our fullness, our growth come from Jesus Christ with whom we died to these world systems. We must no longer live as though we belonged to this world. We must no longer feel pressure from those who would judge us or call us inadequate. Stand firm. Hold fast to the head, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, help us always to cling to your Son for help. Give us discernment to know your Son and reject whatever doesn't come from Him. May we never descend into promulgating human rules as though they pleased you. They can't. can't. 
Please grant us the moral courage and the confidence to disregard untrue criticism. Make us unafraid of what people will say, but make us quick to accept correction so that we will grow in the right way. Cultivate that fruit that you're going to produce in us so that it abounds to your praise and glory. Because we ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen.